You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode number 50. My name is Steve Skojak. I am the publisher and executive director of One Peter Five, and I will be your host for today's episode. So uh, today is Friday, uh, January 18th, 2019, and that means it's March for Life Day, which may seem weird to some of you who always remembered the March for Life consistently being on January 22nd, no matter what happened. Rain, snow, sleet, middle of the week. But I think the uh, I think the organizers for the March for Life are getting smarter in their strategy uh, because a Friday before a long weekend is probably going to guarantee a much larger turnout than Tuesday of next week, which is when the twenty second actually is. So probably a good idea there. One of the most interesting developments uh, to come out of the March for Life. Now I am no longer in the D.C. metro area, which I called home for a long time. I am coming to you from our. Studios in lovely Scottsdale, Arizona, where it is sunny and 69 degrees. Um, But I would have been reporting from the March for Life, and had I been there, I would have told you the same thing I'm about to tell you now, which is that Cardinal Whirl had to back out of being the celebrant for the, the Mass for Life today, and everybody shed a fake tear for him because nobody wants him around. Everybody's sick of him. This is a guy, Cardinal World. Did I call him Archbishop World? Cardinal World, um, who had to resign in shame from his position as the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. Um, he still runs the diocese. Like, they just changed his title. Like, hey, you're an apostolic administrator now, and we're just not going to replace you. Um, so you just keep being you and doing your thing, and we'll just move the shell game, you know, move the cups around, and maybe the people are too stupid to notice. We're not. And we're not too stupid to notice that he was lying to us. You know, He said uh, that he didn't know what McCarrick was up to. His predecessor, Theodore McCarrick, former cardinal, didn't know what he was up to, Mr. Abuser of seminarians and young boys and all this stuff. Um, and then... It comes out last week that, oh, by the way, there was a complaint that was filed by a priest of your diocese when you were the Archbishop of Pittsburgh, and he said McCarrick was doing stuff, and you put your name on it, and you sent it to the uh, the papal nuncio in D.C., and that was in 2004. Oh, well, I wasn't saying that I didn't know that there was accusations he was messing around with seminarians or priests. I was just saying I didn't know there were accusations about minors. ha, ha, ha. And then it's like, actually, no, because here's an interview you gave to CBS News where you were asked directly, did you know that he was messing around with seminarians and priests? And you're, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. I didn't know about that. You did. So then he comes out and he says, well, I forgot. I forgot that a priest of my diocese came to me and accused uh, Theodore McCarrick of doing these things, and then I became the successor of Theodore McCarrick in his diocese in Washington, D.C., and I completely, I mean, it slipped my mind that I had to file this report, the Apostolic Nuncio, in 2004. <laughs> no, you did, no, you did not forget. You didn't forget. 
And you are already have other people saying that you knew about it. Archbishop Vigano says he talked to you about it at length and that you knew. And uh, James Grine, who was McCarrick's longtime abuse victim, says you knew. Everybody says you knew. And so now you're just a big fat liar. And um, nobody wants you around anymore. And you need to leave. And so that's basically what happened today is that's how everybody was feeling. And they were worried about a protest. So they yanked him from offering the mass this morning, and I'm sure there was much rejoicing. He was replaced by the uh, the papal nuncio that's currently in D.C. He offered the mass for him instead. So that's a good development. Uh, I'll be interested to hear uh, when I check in with people who went to the march today to see how it went. Um, sometimes I wonder if we're ever going to reach a time in this country's history where we don't need to march for life seems like it's, I mean, it's literally been my entire life. And uh, I have seven children, one grandchild, and a lot of gray hair. So um, I think it's time for this to come to an end. I want to move on to another story uh, that I, I would like to devote the, the remainder of my monologue to. And it is a story that came out in uh, this publication called La Croix International. Uh, La Croix is uh, originally, I believe it's a French newspaper. I don't know if it's based in France or another French-speaking country. I haven't looked into it. Um, but they've got good stories, actually, even though it's more of a left-leaning pub. Um, not exactly national Catholic reporter-esque. I think they're more concerned with facts than that. Um, but they cover some really important stories, and they bring um, some insights and depth and facts and reporting the stories that I don't see anywhere else. And so even though they're hidden behind a paywall, actually pay to get access to their stuff because I think it's worth it. Um, and today's story is no exception. Uh, actually, I think it came out earlier this week, but I read it this morning, and it's about how Europe is no longer the Catholic continent that it was. There's a new Pew Research report out uh, this month, and the findings show that Europe now hosts only 24% of the world's Catholics. In 1910, which is 109 years ago, that number was 65%. So a drop of of uh, from 65% down to 24% in a century. And when you read that, I don't know about you, but for me, the first thing, um, excuse me, a little bit of a cold and uh, losing my voice. Uh, the first thing that I think of is Hilaire Belloc's book, Europe and the Faith, which, minor tangent, a bunch of Belloc's books have been showing up on the Amazon Kindle store for wicked cheap, like 99 cents a piece. Um, I think the first time I saw any of them on there was last summer and I snatched a bunch of them up. It's a great deal. I have the hard copies, but I like having eBooks. I read them in bed. I like being able to cut and paste from them into documents and articles and things like that. Um, I just think it's really worth having and plus I use e-readers in bed. I don't know about you, but you know, I can read with the lights off and let other people sleep and it's totally fine. Um, so if you're interested in that, I'll put a link, um, to at least this book. Um, and then you can find the others, uh, put that in the show notes. So anyway, uh, in Europe and the faith, Belloc talks about uh, what he calls the Catholic conscience of history. And he says that while there are various aspects of European history, um, related to other faiths, so you could say there's a Jewish aspect of European history, a Protestant aspect, a Muslim aspect. These are external perspectives, um, the Catholic, Belloc writes, sees Europe from within, 
There's no more a Catholic aspect of European history than there is a man's aspect of himself. Um, because, as Belloc argues in this book famously, the faith is Europe and Europe is the faith. The church is Europe and Europe is the church, is another way that he says it. Um, and, you know, when he was writing the book, which was published in 1920, that was still true. I mean, those were the days when Europe was at 65% of the world's Catholics. I think um, that Belloc knew it wouldn't stay that way. You see that in some of his other writings. You know, he talks about, in one of his uh, essays about Islam, he talks about how he sees the likelihood that Islam will rise again as, as Europe um, abandons its, its Christian culture and its Christian roots. So I think he knew that we were headed that way. Um, but he also, at least at the time, saw Catholics as uniquely capable of understanding European history because Catholicism wrote that history. And it was woven into the culture and law and art and architecture and music and codes of governance and everything, everything. The entire society, uh, European society, was, was rooted in the Catholic Church. And now that's fading. And the Pew Report says that as of 2015, Europe as a continent still had the second largest population of Catholics, second only to South America. But there's no qualifier about how many of those Catholics are actually practicing. And from what I hear from my friends who live in Europe, it's not many. I think that it's safe to say that Catholicism is more of a vestigial cultural organ in Europe. Um than anything else. And it's amazing because when you go to Europe, I mean, I haven't been recently. Last time I was in Europe was 2003, and then I traveled somewhat extensively there in 1999. Um, but you know, there's just all these amazing little churches, even in small towns and out-of-the-way places, so much nicer than you find in most of America. Um, but they're, they're empty. And... It's, it's really a tragedy. It's, it's just that, that people have abandoned the Catholicism that, you know, this treasure that was given to them, they just don't have it anymore. Um, and, and the question of why, I think, actually winds up being central to a lot of what we are trying to figure out as we address the crisis not just in the church, but in the world. There was another story in La Croix. Um, it was an interview with a political scientist by the name of Olivier Roy. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's spelled O-L-I-V-I-E-R. But because I do not speak French, I uh, no, no parler français, I don't know if it's supposed to be pronounced Oliver or Olivier. So I'm going to say Olivier because I like it better. And um, yeah, that was totally random accent insertion. Sorry about that. Just one of those days. So Olivier Roy, who has written a book about Christianity in Europe. And Roy is dismissive of the role of Islam in the de-Christianization of Europe, which, I mean, I think that that deserves some scrutiny, but I'm not sure he's wrong. Because he points out something similar to what I said Belloc saw coming, which is that how Europe was de-Christianizing itself before Islam became the factor that it is. 
He says that while Europe still thinks of itself as Christian, it hasn't really been the case in a while, and that since at least 1968, Europe has been undergoing major anthropological shifts that have, quote, fundamentally separated society's values from Christian values, end quote. And then he puts his finger right on it. Quote, dechristianization is not so much to do with the decline in religious practice as an adherence to a new anthropology centered on the individual, which is totally contrary to Christianity, end quote. I don't know if you caught that. I'm going to read it again. Dechristianization is not so much to do with the decline in religious practice as an adherence to a new anthropology centered on the individual, which is totally contrary to Christianity. So basically what we have here is a political scientist admitting that humanism is the reason Christianity is falling apart. But, I mean, we know this, right? Everything is about man now. And all I can think of when I'm reading uh, this is the Second Vatican Council's Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. You know it is Gaudium et Spes, which reads in paragraph 12, quote, according to the almost unanimous opinion, of believers and unbelievers alike, all things on earth should be related to man as their center and crown. Now call me crazy, but I think the Christian ethos looks at Jesus as the center point of history and the things around which all things on earth should be related. This is why we believe in things like the social kingship of Christ. Not just, he's not just king of your heart. He's supposed to actually have a central role in society, in law, in governance, in culture. But this espousal of this humanist understanding, and some people call it Christian humanism as though adding the Christian adjective somehow gussies it up, it's a problem. And Gaudium et Spes actually takes it further uh, a little bit later in paragraph 24 when it says, quote, for love of God and neighbor is the first and greatest commandment, end quote. Oh, Really? I don't recall love of God and neighbor being the first and greatest commandment. I seem to recall Jesus saying something quite different, don't you? It's going to keep happening, guys. I haven't been getting much sleep lately. <laughs> so the accents, they're just going to creep in. But seriously, so let's take a look at this, because we've written about this here before. A love of God and neighbor is not the first and greatest commandment. How do we know this? Well, because we have a little thing called the scriptures. And in Matthew 22, we have where this hierarchy of laws comes from. So there's a doctor of the law who's among the Pharisees and scribes, and he comes and asks Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law, right? Jesus responds and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Um, and then he emphasizes that answer saying this, loving God with your heart, mind, and soul is the first and greatest commandment. And then he goes on to say that the second commandment is like it. It is not equal to it, it is like it. And that is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Gaudium et Spes simply paralyzes these two. It says love of God and neighbor is the first and greatest commandment. But it's not, it's love of God. End, full stop. And yet this doesn't end with Gaudium et Spes. Pope Paul VI repeats this conflation in his decree on the Apostle of the Laity, Apostolicum Actuositatum. 
He even cites Matthew 22, which is weird because Matthew 22 refutes it, but he cites it and then says the greatest commandment in the law is to love God with one's whole heart and one's and one's neighbor as oneself. If he had stopped it as at, at to love God with one's whole heart, it would have been fine. But he erases the hierarchy. He just turns it into one commandment. So fast forward like 50 years and through all the garbage that we've endured that is clearly uh, rooted in this humanism. And now we've got Pope Francis in his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 161, taking this to its logical conclusion and then just inverting the two commandments. But I should say not just inverting the two commandments, he actually erases God from the equation. So here's Here's the Bergoglian sleight of hand. This is how this works. He writes, quote, Above all, the new commandment, the first and greatest of the commandments, and the one that best identifies us as Christ's disciples, is, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. End quote. Now he cites John chapter 15 here. Because that's what he's actually quoting when he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. But John 15 is not the story about the doctor of the law asking about the hierarchy of commandments. It is instead the parable that Christ tells of the vine and the branches. And in John chapter 15, verses 12 to 13, what he's saying is something different. With a different pedagogical aim, it is not an answer to this kind of a question, it's something totally different. He's saying in that in those verses, 12 to 13, quote, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love than this, no man hath that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's a different teaching. But we have Francis mashing it up. So he's taking the, the thing where he says, the first and greatest of the commandments from Matthew 22, and then he's squishing it up against John 15 and, and making the first and greatest commandment about love of neighbor. And it's not. It is not. It never has been. It never will be. And God is completely pushed aside. It's imminentism. It is humanism. It is not the theology upon which we base our understanding of, of how and why we love. And this humanism just keeps on seeping in and creeping around in this religion of ours. And, and our religion is and always has been and always will be God-focused first. We love our neighbor because we love God. We love him because that's what God wants us to do. You know, otherwise, we're probably not going to love him at all. I mean, think about it. Dostoevsky's you know, assertion that if God is not, everything is permissible. In a world like that, in a world without God, you're not going to love your neighbor. I mean, maybe the ones you like. But a lot of times, I have neighbors I wouldn't even want to go bowling with, let alone love. They come to my door, I'm pretending I'm not home. Because a lot of them are big, fat jerks. And I don't want to talk to them, and I don't want to see them. These are people, oftentimes, who are petty and who try to hurt you and hurt your reputation and... You know, do all kinds of stuff that tick you off. And the last thing I'm going to want to do is love my enemies, who my, my neighbors often are. I, I don't do that strictly for them. In a world without God, they don't, 
they are not the beneficiaries of my love. In a world without God, there's a lot more revenge. In a world without God, there's a lot more self-preservation at the expense of others. But we sublimate all things in our love for God. We love souls because he loves souls and we love him and we love them for his sake. That's how this works. He teaches us how to love others and be selfless through his love, through the, through the emptying out of self that Christ models on the cross. And that's honestly the only way this works. So this humanism is just in everything in the church now. We see it especially in things like liturgy, architecture, music. I mean, think about it. You know, we had choirs that were in the choir loft in the back of the church, and now suddenly they're up in the front and they're facing us. We had priests who faced the altar, and now they're facing us. I'm old enough to remember that, you know, when I was growing up, it was really hard to find Jesus in the sanctuary because the tabernacle got kicked out of every sanctuary pretty much everywhere. It was on the side, it was in another room, it was in a broom closet. There was a church where I grew up, in the town where I grew up, and, and the church was named, ironically, Blessed Sacrament. But it was so hard to find the tabernacle in that church that my uncle dubbed it the Church of the Divine Absence. When I was at Steubenville, you know, and Steubenville's in the news for other things these days that I'm not very proud of, but Steubenville had made a turn for the better. When I was there from 97 to 2001, the tabernacle wasn't even in the sanctuary. It wasn't even the main body of the church. It was in a side chapel off to the right. And there was this ugly curtain that they used to separate that chapel from the main chapel. And I, I mean, I guess it was, you know, when, I don't know why. I honestly, I'm not even going to try to speculate, but they separated it that way. And they could open it up if they needed more seating or I don't know, it was weird. But I used to make these Wizard of Oz jokes, like, pay no attention to that God-man behind the curtain. Because, you know, who needs, who needs Jesus in the tabernacle? We got charismatic stuff going on in here. Um, later on, I was told that they actually moved the tabernacle to the center of the church, uh, which I was very gratified to hear. Um, but, I mean, this was just common. You know, the whole thing with the mass facing the people said in dialogue style it creates a natural psychological interplay between the priest and the people. And God gets shoved out to the side. Think about it. Psychologically, anthropologically speaking, it, you know, right now I'm looking at the camera. So ostensibly I'm looking at you. But I mean, if we were sitting in a room and having a conversation and I'm making eye contact with you and we're talking, it would be really weird for me to be addressing somebody over on the other side of the room while I'm making eye contact with you and having this conversation with you, like I would turn and I would look at them. But that isn't what happens in the dialogue mass. The priest is looking at the people, the people are looking at the priest, and ostensibly we're talking to God, but we're talking to each other. And it creates this contradiction, this disconnect that actually has an effect on our ability to understand, even on a subconscious level, what we're really experiencing or should be experiencing when we're at the mass. Excuse me. Again, cold. I apologize. Um, so when I was a kid, I remember specifically like having this weird feeling that the doxology, which you know later I realized, oh, this is how Protestants say they are, Father. Why are we doing that? Um, but we were saying the doxology, but I'm looking at the priest, right? So I'm saying for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. And I'm looking at the priest and I'm like, 
he gets the kingdom and the power and the glory. I mean, that's weird, but I think that's a pretty sweet gig. You know, I was a, I was little, I mean, fairly little, probably 10 years old. But there's a logic to that. I'm looking at you. I'm saying this to you. So it's about you, right? And so we've pushed God out of the churches and taken his place. We've made the liturgy about us, about our interaction, about our experience, about what we bring to it, about what we get out of it, how it makes us feel. So in a way, it's like going to the movies or to a show. Uh, it's just a matter of taste. Mass is not a, something that's objectively good and, and worthy and pleasing to God, that we are privileged to be able to attend something that's outside of us and better than us. Um, we go to the Mass instead that we like best, right? So eh, I prefer just a conservative English Novus Ordo that doesn't have a lot of happy clappy music. So I'll go to the 7 a.m. Mass on Sunday. And if you want the charismatic mass we've got one of those at 11 30 there'll be some speaking in tongues and we'll have some guitars you want the bongo life teen mass we've got that one at 5 p.m um we don't have mariachi masses or polka masses but you can get those down the street and if you really like the weird kind of stuffy old novus ordo latin ad orientum with smells and bells uh you know saint mary's uh in town has that one at 10 o'clock on sunday you can go to that one if you want it's, it's just a buffet. That's all it is. It's choices. You know, if we're making a meal analogy, when your kids come to the table and they're like, I don't want chicken and broccoli. I want waffles and syrup. And you go, no, this is what we made for dinner. It's good for you. You don't need to eat waffles and syrup right now. This is what we made and this is what you're going to eat. But, but what the church has done as, is neglected its parenting duty and it's not even talking about waffles, which you could construe as a breakfast food. It's like, you want cotton candy for dinner? Have it. Put some syrup on top. Like, who cares? Just do whatever you want. And that's insane. It is absolutely insane. Even reverence in the mass has become optional. And because it's optional, it's still about what we feel. It's about what we want and what we like. We aren't the point. And that is really hard to wrap your mind around. When I first went to a traditional Latin mass, I was in high school. And it was at a Catholic high school. And some group borrowed our chapel for a traditional mass. And I think it was on a weekend. And I went over to check it out. And I hated it with every fiber of my being. There's weird people up in there who were dressed different. And they were wearing chapel veils. And the priest was like hovering over the altar in a way that I couldn't see what was going on because his body was in the way and his back was to me. I couldn't hear a word that he was saying. What I, when he would make audible sounds, they were all in Latin. I didn't know what any of it was. I felt repulsed. It was like, this isn't Catholic. That was, I think that was the feeling. Is This isn't Catholic. I know what Catholic is. I go to Mass every day, and this isn't it. And I know the Mass inside and out. I could recite the whole thing from memory. It was not him. It was not that mass. It was me. I was the problem. I had been conditioned my whole life to have it be about me. You know, it's, it's so hard when you have a liturgical space that's dominated by the personality of a priest, especially one that you like. Or, you know, our own tastes and wants and interactions. We're up in the sanctuary. 
We're reading the readings. We're doing the intercessory prayers. We're bringing up the gifts. We're glad-handing each other right after our Lord has been consecrated on the altar when we shouldn't be taking our attention off him is when we do. All this stuff is what's going on in the modern liturgy. And then when we enter into the sacred space that is created by the ancient liturgy, we feel totally out of place. I lived this. And it's like, what about me? Why can't I hear what's going on? I don't like this. What's he saying? I don't understand. It's me, 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 me. But I'm not there for me, right? I'm there for him. The beauty of the Mass is that is the the sacrifice of Calvary. It is Christ the victim being offered by Christ the priest, because the, there's only one priesthood and it's Christ, so the man acting in persona Christi is Christ, offering Christ the perfect victim through the power of the Holy Spirit to God the Father. It is a Trinitarian event. It is patristically focused. It's it's all going in that one direction, right? We're not having this conversation where I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, but we're talking to God and getting confused about it. It perfectly, it perfectly makes sense. But only when you learn to let go of what about me. And that's so hard when you live in a church and a society imbued with humanism. I mean, we live in an age where it was only a little over a century ago that we had several popes in a row write encyclicals about the dangers of Freemasonry, right? And, and now we have Masonic lodges from around the world praising our pope for his humanistic values. It just happened again because of his Christmas message. This is a, is a fundamental reorientation. We are a Christological people but we have become humanistic and inwardly focused and it's self-destructive. And it's what Satan has always done to us from, you know, the book of Genesis on. He, he doesn't tempt Adam and Eve uh, to be subservient to God and he doesn't really tempt them to leave God. He tempts them to see themselves as gods. If you eat of it, you will be like God's. It's all about self-aggrandizement. It's all about, I am more important than him, or at least as important than him. And if you think you're as important as God, you're going to say, like Satan, I will not serve. So if you look at Europe and you look at the decline of the faith, if you look at secularization and de-Christianization, I think you can tie it all back to this strain of humanism in the church. Because if Belloc was right, and the faith was Europe, and Europe was the faith, and when, when, when the church lost the faith, it lost Europe. When the church abandoned her traditional perennial faith, she abandoned the culture that was created by it, and it separated. Popes and bishops have been telling us for decades now that God isn't as important as our feelings, that sin doesn't matter, as much as how we feel, that we can't evangelize people because it might hurt their feelings, that if people turn away because of hard sayings because their feelings are hurt, then we'd better stop saying those things. Practically speaking, on a superficial level, uh, this has benefited both sides of the equation, I think. 
Um, and what I mean by that is the people get like a steady rectal IV of sunshine to, you know, just boost them up and they get the ego massage and their self-esteem gets all polished. And in exchange, the prelates of the church become heroes because they tell the people everything they want to hear. And then the people give them money and let them do whatever they want. And nobody really looks too closely at all the weird stuff that's going on. But now that's falling apart. With the arrival of Sex Abuse Crisis 2.0, the people have woken up and, and they, they don't really feel like they need the church anymore. Because with these dark deeds and the complicity in the dark deeds of others, even if they're not engaging, all coming to light, you have, you have a Catholic populace that has been stripped of all sense of the sacred. They've long since been told that the lady should have a say in everything. You know, it's the age of the laity, right? They've been long made to believe that there's no qualitative difference between the baptismal and, and sacramental priesthood. Uh, they've long been made to believe that the church is a big democracy where every voice, you know, has to be heard. And people expect all of that now, and they don't care. They don't care that the bishops want to sort out their own issues because it seems like it's, you know, structurally the right thing to do. Or they don't care whether it's hierarchically appropriate for lay commissions to have oversight over bishops in sex abuse cases. People have been de-Christianized. They have zero respect for these offices in the church because the men who've held these offices for, for generations have had no respect. Well, maybe not generations, but at least one generation, maybe two, have not treated their offices with respect. They've treated them as, as opportunities to pursue vice in many cases, and that's it. And so nobody cares anymore. There's no respect for the church, even among Catholics, even in many respects among traditional believing Catholics because they're so fed up and, and they are so used to being betrayed and let down. Everybody has lost something in this. And when you have a de-Christianized people faced with a church that is doing these kinds of things, they're just going to leave because the church isn't making them feel good about themselves anymore. It's just making them feel bad. They're now part of a thing that makes them feel bad. And so they're already not practicing. Not really. They're contracepting and they're only showing up to mass when they feel like it. And yeah, they, they think gay marriage is fine and all these different things. I mean, you pick it. They're not really Catholic. They were going through the motions. Now there's not even a reason to go through the motions anymore. And so I think what we're facing in this self-created disaster is an imminent implosion of the church. Throughout much of the West, uh, Europe will be first, of course. Um, you know, Germany's a good example. There's a, a prominent European layman who said to me last year that if, uh, if the church tax in Germany, which you know is mandatory, everybody in Germany has to pay a church tax if they're a member of a church, and otherwise they basically have to claim that they've apostatized, that they don't practice the faith anymore if they want to get out of it, which really stinks for German Catholics who are like, I'm funding sacrilege by giving money to this, but I don't want to say I'm not a Catholic anymore to get out of it. But if that tax were eliminated, and it should be, the German church would collapse overnight. But because it exists as it is, the German bishops are billionaires. They're sitting on all this wealth they're not taking care of their people. They've got no vocations. Their churches are, are mostly empty. 
But you know what they do? They bankroll stuff going on in Rome, and then they pull the strings, and Rome dances to their tune. It's like a big Ponzi scheme. And the Vatican is, frankly, grabbing at money everywhere it can. You know, you look at the case of Cardinal Pell, which I don't think we're at the bottom of what really happened there. But he found a billion euros in the mattresses in the Vatican's. The next thing you know, Archbishop Beccio, who seems to to be summoned and and appear on the scene anytime there's serious money involved, shows up and is like, all right, we're done. We're done with this financial reform. And next thing you know, Pell's being hauled back to Australia to face 40-year-old charges that, you know, are of specious veracity. Um, Beccio also shows up uh, with the Knights of Malta. He became the special delegate after Cardinal Burke was basically alinskied out of there. Um, Knights of Malta had a 30 million Swiss franc bequest that I think the Vatican seems to want to get its hands on. You know, the FFIs, the Franciscan Friars, the Maculata, they had 30 million in assets, roughly. Um, the Papal Foundation, that's another 25 million. I mean, you start looking all over the place and you see money and everybody and their brother is now investigating the clerical sex abuse, both media and law enforcement uh, and and civil governments. Um, and, the, and the very likely trafficking, honestly, that goes along with this kind of sex abuse, you know, which makes it necessary to follow money trails. And they're following the money and they're gonna find things and the game's up. And what is absolutely mystifying to me is that we still have men in positions of power in the church like Cardinal Whirl, who are so unbelievably out of touch with reality, probably because they've been getting away with doing whatever they want for so long that they think they can lie to our faces and we're going to keep believing it. Sorry, ladies, that game is up. Those days are over. We're done. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. All right, so I'm joined now by Bree Dale, who is a contributor for One Peter Five, LifeSite News, and I don't know, probably a lot of other things at this point. Besides, because Bree is like the new upcoming media chick in the Catholic world. <laughs> Bree is uh, at the March for Life. I believe it completed. Uh, the march is over what time? Uh, I think the march finished. Well, it started at one, uh, around one, and I think uh, people are probably still marching. To be honest with you, and it got done. The front of the line got down about an hour and a half ago. Okay, so uh, you guys are hanging out, having some drinks, talking about the day. What did you see? Yeah. I mean, you go most every year, right? Um, to be honest, uh, I have not been to the march for at least 10 years. Really? Um, and that's a mea culpa. Yeah, that's a mea culpa for that. Uh, we did that a lot at Christendom, go up to the march. And uh, I'm a Christendom grad, as you know. Yeah. And so um, I don't know. It just has been, I, I live quite a distance away, and um, I have participated in other pro-life activities, but the march just seemed to be a bit 
sit much with me, and I don't like crowds, to be honest with you. You know, <laughs> it I'm, might be my background there, Steve. Yeah, so. I'm with you on that. I'm not a big crowd guy either. So yeah, soft target, right? So okay, well, that's interesting though, because not having been, you know, in ten years, what did you yeah. see today that felt different from the last time you've been? Well, so um, I was up at the front with the media, and I was covering uh, exclusive with uh, Joy Vila. I'm not sure if you know who she is, but um, she's a singer-songwriter, very okay. much involved with uh, with the pro-Trump movement, and she actually is also pro-life and uh, has had her own experience and an open adoption. And so I was, I was covering uh, with her. And what was really interesting is that um, Joy... Uh, kind of molded into the crowd and everybody was super, super welcoming. But, um, and I know that she was recognized, but people treated her just like anybody else. And that was something that was kind of striking to me, uh, right on the go, you know, outgo because people are pro-life, they recognize every life as sacred. Right. And so every life is important, not just a celebrity. And I think she realized, you know, she saw that too. And she embraced that and was very, very happy and open about that. Um, but yeah, it, to me, it was just the astounding numbers that you never, ever hear about in the mainstream media. Do you feel like it was more, I mean, I, I, I think one of the things that's interesting, and I mentioned this earlier on the show, you know, years ago when, when the march was run by different people, uh, it was hardcore. It was like, it's going to be on the 22nd, no matter what, no matter what. And and now you've got this Friday before a long weekend. Do you think the turnout was maybe bigger because of that? Yes, <laughs> and it's it's smart to do it that way. Yeah, I you agree. know. Um, and, and what's also just amazing is just I mean, if you saw the scope, Steve, of youth that were there, um, you know, this year the those who were carrying the sign. So uh, those who carry the sign are from the college. Right. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. those who carry the flags are from high school. Right. And uh, those who are carrying the sign this year were from Princeton University. Really? Princeton. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I mean, this goes against the face of all those who say pro-lifers are ignorant um, and they're, you know, anti-women. The majority of those carrying the, um, the sign, I, and I would say it would be 50-50, women and men. Yeah. Young women and men, um, young priests, young religious were there. Um, not a lot of protesters. Interesting. Uh, and I, I was, I was seeing all the media, and I was seeing the faces of the media, who were also many of them very young. Seeing these young people filled with joy, and I could see in their faces, they're like, "We ain't got nothing on this." Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we it, have nothing. It's interesting because. <sighs> I had sort of a love-hate relationship with the March for Life for a while because I felt that politically uh, it failed to move the needle, that politically it was misdirected. You know, it's kind of yeah. uh, like Justice Scalia wrote in his dissent on the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey. You know, we have this problem of people marching up and standing on the steps of the Supreme Court every year to protest abortion. But we're not elected officials. We're not supposed to be moved by public sentiment. This is not where this protest should be directed. But because of the activism of the judges, you know, this is where we find ourselves. Um, yeah. And, and so I've always felt like, you know, this is a legislative issue. This isn't a Supreme Court issue. Yeah. You know, we're not moving the needle. We do this. I mean, what is, the, what is it, the 44th, the 45th? I don't even know what year we're on now. 
<laughs> I don't, to, to tell you the truth, I'm not 100% sure either. I will say, though, that it is a, a point to be made that the, um, that the march ends at the Capitol building. Oh, really? Right? And so, so yeah, so it is making a clear statement. Um, and I think I, we should also say, Steve, it's, it's interesting because Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, right, she has the tendency every year during this time to get out of Dodge. Yeah. It's known. It's funny that yesterday, at the very last minute, our pro-life president squashed that. <laughs> yes, and I, you know, obviously. In a very public way. <laughs> obviously, yeah. in a very public way. Obviously, to kind of shame the whole situation right now uh, with the government shutdown. But oh, it is interesting, isn't it, that she had to be here it is. And During you know, time. what I was going to say is I've kind of come to the conclusion that my political cynicism, you know, which people who live in the DC area develop a very deep political cynicism yes. over time. Yes. Uh, because enough. you just, you can't get away from it. You're constantly surrounded no. by political operatives at work, you know, yes. everywhere you go. Um, but, but I went back to the March. I think the first time I went back in a while was 2015 and I covered it as a media uh, person not as yeah. you know as much as an attendee and I was yeah. I was struck by how important it is as an event for pro-life youth you, you're talking about the amount yeah. of young people there but this is like this is basic training for the pro-life youth this, this is you where right. you go in and you're like wow there are hundreds of thousands of people who believe this same thing that I do, even though in my world, in my school, in my workplace or wherever, like I feel like I'm outnumbered. I'm not alone. And this is a real thing. And it's got legs and, and it's got future generations that keep coming. Yes. And, you know, that's the point that um, Joy Vila made the other day was that, you know, come out and see that you aren't alone and that there are like-minded individuals who are civil and are joyful. And she said, you know, what I loved about what her interview I did with LifeSite is that she said, you know, pro-lifers are filled with joy and full of life. Yeah. And that's, that's really dynamic because when we see this counterculture, you know, Antifa mentality uh, that is kind of insipid to the, uh, the current generation. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's been made a mark to say these angry Antifa communists, you know, the Ortega Cortez types who are ignorant. You don't see that here. You no. see smart, uh, eloquent, civil um, pro-lifers. And yeah, you see that kind of wonder. And if anybody has have. a reason to be angry, it's these people. I mean, they have yeah. survived a Holocaust. Many yeah. of them have lost siblings to this war. Yeah. You know, and, and they're not out there swinging bike locks at people and, you know, throwing rocks. And Quite wearing... the contrary, right? Yeah. Quite the contrary. Uh, we, I, we went past uh, a group of women who uh, were holding signs that they were conceived by rape. Yeah, those are powerful. There's a group of them. Yes. It's incredibly powerful. And there's so yeah. many women. I, I feel like in my experience, having gone, you know, many times it, it, there are so many more women now uh, maybe maybe it's just my perception but i feel like there were always more women than men and it's it's something that's underreported yeah and and that again you know seeing it being 50 50 and really seeing men who were there supportive and you know seeing women holding signs saying i regret my abortion yeah, yeah. 
And then men holding sign, I, I, reg- I regret my lost fatherhood. Oh, my gosh. To me, that is so powerful because, uh, you know, the, the conversation never really falls on um, what the males suffer. I mean, yeah. I've spoken directly with Father Stephen Imbrato on his story, and, you know, he mourns the loss of twins that yeah. he had. And which drove him towards the priesthood, thanks be to God, right. and towards pro-life activism. But when you, when you take a look at so many men who suffer um, silently oftentimes because they don't have a choice or a voice, um, you know, and that's something, too, that Joy wanted to push as well was, you know, what is choice in reality with the liberal side or the leftist side or the leftist agenda is really abortion. We know this, but she, she pushed us to the point that when she was in the clinic and she just finds out at 19 years old that she's pregnant and unmarried, mm-hmm. the first thing that the woman who was, uh, you know, there to assist her motherly said to her was, oh, it's no problem. We'll get you a referral for abortion. Everybody does it. My kids have done it. They're fine. And she was flabbergasted that there was no other opportunity that she was given. Like it wasn't nothing even that she was asked what she wanted to do. It was just, a, it was, nothing. it was a given. Yeah, it was, a, it was, it was, she didn't, there was no choice. It was either life or death to her. Mm. Um, and, and in reality, because they, they didn't even give her the, you know, Hey, we can help you out. Here's some pamphlets on a, on, you know, adoption. Right. It was just here. Let's just terminate, you know? And I think many people have just um, started to wake up to, you know, be red-pilled in a way to this culture of death and anger and see the the culture of life. Do you think that, you know, the constant advances of science in this regard are are making a difference? Did you see anything like that on display? I mean, I remember in the past there was a lot more proclivity toward sort of the gruesome and the macabre at the March for Life, sometimes I think to our detriment. But still I feel there. like, is yeah. it, or has it changed? I don't know. That's still there. Yeah, I, I, I saw it, and I, I can't look at that, because these are human beings who have been, you know, brutalized. But in a way, um, for some, it needs to be driven home that these are not, you know, just tissue, but this is, you know, children who have hands and feet. Well, and I think that um, it's something, you know, that there's a group that was there before called the Genocide Awareness Project, and I think they... Yeah. They handle those kinds of images, but a little more sensitively because they say, look, you know, people didn't get the Holocaust until the pictures came out. Until the pictures yeah. from the concentration camps were published and then they were like, whoa, that's that's what happened. And yeah. so it's the same kind of thing is that we forget what we're not confronted with, which is. And di- there's a need yeah. for shock. There's a need for shock because it is shocking. I mean, in, in reality, this is either murder or it's not right i mean there's no in between here they can try it but just like you said with the science um you know one of the things that i really appreciate in the march for life down in in south america um was that women i believe it was in brazil had taped um uh, uh just some kind of sound um contraption to their pregnant bellies yeah. <laughs> and you, you could hear the heartbeat and they blasted the heartbeat over <laughs> uh, <laughs> over loudspeakers wow 
that's impact that's impactful yeah that's impactful you don't have to say a word you'd have to show anything except for a beautifully pregnant woman with the sound piece strapped to her stomach and that drives home a point and so I agree with you, but I think, and again, like our society is so desensitized anyway. Sometimes you do have to have the shock value. It's just for me, it's very difficult uh, for me to, to handle those um, those pictures just as it's no, very I difficult feel the for, same way. for me to see. Yeah. It's very difficult. Can I, can yeah. I switch topics a little bit and sure. ask you about something that I know you're also, um, you know, covering a lot, which is how much did the situation with Cardinal World seem like it was a, a presence on the mind of people down there? Did you encounter that at all? You know, I didn't hear one word about him, which is nice, I think. Yeah. <laughs> In reality, um, I think that, uh, that people would have been outraged to have him uh, say Mass. Um, I think people were satisfied by the fact that he was pretty much shouted down, if you want to say, yeah. <laughs> by, by the faithful. I mean, you know he's backed down, because of, I, I actually think, Steve, um, what you had posted the other day was something that was being considered, yeah. um, which was, you know, uh, kind of a shocking <laughs> the, the army of <laughs> The army of Vigano images to confront him, yeah. True. I mean, no, I, I, I'm... I, I say it in jest, but it it was a possibility because people were to that point. Yeah, I think people and are so, fed up. Yeah, yeah, and I think even the 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 potential for something like that with such a, a huge media um, presence was enough for him to back off. And I think there, to be honest with you, sorry, there's a bus going by. To be honest with you, I think that there is also other things. There are also things that at play right mm. now um which put him not at ease in being the, in the spotlight yeah and we'll just leave it at that yeah. well i hope that that's right because um you know I, I you weren't listening when i was doing my monologue earlier but i'm talking about uh, you know how th they they have gotten away with this stuff for so long that they actually think we're stupid enough that we're going to believe things like i forgot and and we're not. Yes. We don't believe it no. anymore. The game is up, guys. Well, as Father as Father Ripperger likes to point out, uh, St. Thomas also does, that sin makes you stupid. Yes, and it does. So, uh, and so does power hunger. And so when you see uh, individuals who feel safe in their, uh, in their throne, so to speak, and detached from what is going on in, in you know, the faithful, um, they tend to to start making mistakes. And it's, it's, it's a tendency, too, for those who lie, you know, because you, you lie and you lie and you lie and you get caught just like he did in the lies because you can't remember anymore right. what you lied about. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah the truth um, is easier to keep straight because you yeah. kind of know what you did and what you didn't do. <laughs> yes. I mean, and isn't that kind of what our Lord taught us? Right. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Well, Bree, thank you so much. I know that you are visiting with other March attendees and you took time to step outside of uh, the restaurant that you were in to, to take my call. So I appreciate you giving us a report from on the scene. Oh, Steve, it was my pleasure. Have a great one. Thanks, you too. We'll have you on again soon. Take care. Okay, bye.
All right, everybody. Well, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. For those of you tuning in on YouTube, uh, thank you for watching our video podcast. For those of you listening to the audio-only version, we do have a video version of the podcast available at youtube.com forward slash 1peter5. Um, those who are watching the video can get our audio-only podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast recording software. You can also download or stream it directly from 1peter5.com. We would love to get your opinions on whether or not you like the video version of the podcast. I mean, I don't want to sit here and look at myself talking to people for an hour, but maybe you do. And if you do, that's fine. Let us know and we'll keep making them. Otherwise, until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And God bless you. You've been listening to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. If you have downloaded this podcast through iTunes, we encourage you to go there and leave us a review to help others find and enjoy our show. If you would like to support our work, go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution. This not only helps to pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.